0: This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Welcome, everybody, to um, this breakout section on uh, climate and conflict. And I'm really excited to have you here to have a discussion about this, because this is really a very new topic, and I have brought in the best and the brightest (laughs) to help sort this out, because... Uh, most people are not smart enough to sort out this situation. I think what's really interesting is, for the first time, the confluence of very hard science in the climate sciences is coming together with, you know, political science and political economy um, in ways to learn each other's language and to really sort out how would, how should we think about this now. Um, when we look at climate and conflict connections, I think the challenging parts are the biggest changes that we're going to see are going to be in the future. We've seen climate variability in the past, and we can measure some of the impacts of that on political stability, but the big changes are going to be the big devastating changes that I presented today. And so we have to take our glass ball and somehow make very you know, coherent sense out of how a very biophysical system and a political, socio-political system actually interact. And um, so it's an exciting topic, does um, present itself with a number of uncertainties, and I think both David and Ted are here to show you, um, you know, how, how we should think about this um, empirically, but also in the context of y- y- what's happening on the ground in places that are most likely to be affected. So let me introduce the speakers. Um, David LaBelle is a Lawrence fellow at Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory, focusing on climate impacts on society. He spent a lot of his um, research time focusing on climate and agriculture, food production, and rural development links. He's also – so he's worked – focused on Africa quite a bit. But he's also done quite a bit of field work in Mexico and done some significant work in the United States in terms of how climate impacts Um, our physical systems here. Um, David did his PhD here at Stanford completed in 2005 and his um, undergraduate at Brown. Um, When you look at David's record, he just has a phenomenal academic record and I know this because we've actually just hired him here to Stanford for 2008 and it really puts all of the full professors to shame. I mean people are kind of embarrassed when they look at David because Uh, He's way, way above most of them. He looks like he's 10, but he's, you know, actually not, you know, and and it is phenomenal. Um, And Ted Miguel is another one of our our young stars that is in this field. Ted is an associate professor of economics at Berkeley. He's been there since 2000. Came from that university on that other coast, Harvard, uh, where he did his PhD. He was an NSF fellow there and did his undergraduate at MIT. Um, Ted has been focusing on African economic development. And he's really looking at the economic causes and consequences of violence. And so he's making these links in a very uh, interesting way. He does field work in a number of African countries. Kenya, Sierra Leone. What, there's a number. He'll he'll mention where he's working, and he's here right now. But he actually uh, spends quite a bit of his time over in Africa. He's had a number of awards um, and fellowships that he's recognized for. Um, I want to give him a plug for his new book that's going to be coming out next year called "Economic Gangsters: Corruption." violence and the poverty of nations. And I think it'll tie a lot of the issues we're talking about together. So I'll give the floor first to David LaBelle and then to Ted Miguel. Thank
1: you. I think I look at least 15, so I don't know what she's talking about. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I can reach, I think. Okay. So Ra- Roz mentioned in her talk that if uh, you look at the number of people each year that die from things related to hunger, it's it's easily ten times the, the number of people who die in conflict and, and a thousand times the number of people who die in terrorism. Now obviously that could change with a, a, a nuclear um explosion or something, but but in general that's the, the current state. And and we I think partially for that reason tend uh tend to spend most of our time thinking about hunger. Um and so I don't I don't spend a lot of time thinking about conflict so much and it was fun to, to prepare for this and think about it. Um and of course as an academic I could easily spend 15 minutes talking about something I don't know about, anything about, but I'm, I'm going to focus more on the on the climate uh, crop connection and and leave a little bit of um, the, the conflict stuff to Ted and defer on that. But I, I think we'll have a, an, an interesting discussion after. And what I want to do is, is really just lay out a few things that we know about climate change and what it means for crops and a few things that we don't know and, and what are the key opportunities and, and uncertainties in that respect. Um, I, I do want to just make one brief point on conflict which is that i think to a lot of people in the room and in and, and stanford in general it's a pretty obvious link between climate change and, and conflict um maybe not a simple one but but we feel like there is some link there and that's not at all obvious i think to, to most of the population and a lot of questions i got after the the nobel peace prize went to al gore and, and the ipcc was um you know what does that have to do with peace right so I think it's useful just to start out by looking at their um, citation, and and just I, not to read the whole thing, but what I've highlighted there in, in red is the logic: is that extensive climate change may induce large-scale migration through flooding and 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 things like that, and lead to greater competition for the earth's resources. And so that's the, uh, you know, the thing we're going to be talking about here is in, in terms of food production, and it's really one of the main things in their logic of of why climate change leads uh, potentially to, to you know, threats to peace. And it, it says right there that there may be an increased danger of violent conflicts and wars as a result. So it, it's not, I don't think, surprising to anyone that that agriculture is, is affected by climate or or by weather, but I think it is quite surprising uh, to most people just how sensitive agriculture is. Even, even today, with all the modern technologies we have and all of the, the, the irrigation we have, climate is still quite sensitive to both temperature rainfall and, and to some extent, other aspects of climate, like solar radiation and things. But what I wanted to do briefly was just go through a, a, an example to demonstrate this. And what I'm showing here is um, just a time series uh, for the last 40 or so years of the average temperature and rainfall for rice in South Asia, so India and Pakistan. This is a, probably the, the most important crop in the most important region in terms of food security. Um, and, and also, as we, we talked about a little bit with the conflicts, and, and there certainly, Great concerns in this area too, in this region. So, w- what you can see is that temperature and, and rainfall vary quite a bit, um, you know, and, and you can look at these changes from year to year and compare them to how food production, or in this case, rice production, changed. And so, this is the kind of thing we do from from an analytical perspective: is just simply to go back in history and see what is what is the relationship that we can we can look at. We know. You know, as, as an analog, if we take a year like uh, 65 when there was a very low rainfall amount, that was a, a pretty big famine in India. But beyond the simple analog issue, we go in to try to look quantitatively at the relationship. And when you d- when you start to do that in different countries, and, and this is an example of just plotting those changes in rainfall or changes in temperature against, against the change in, in production or the change in um, yield, which is the production per unit area, uh, for each year you can see that there is a... a, a very strong uh, relationship, uh, we consider this a very strong relationship between rainfall going up and, and that increases production, if rainfall goes down, that decreases production. Um, sorry. And if you look at temperature, you see the opposite, whereas temperature goes up, uh, production goes down, and it's a weaker relationship. And I think this is consistent with our perception in some sense of, of you know, what famines and droughts are caused by is a, a lack of rain, and usually you see headlines talking about um, droughts and, and, and lack of rain. And it's true that on a year-to-year basis, rainfall is probably more important in most regions than temperature, and, and Ted will will show more data to to back this up. The point I want to make today is is partially that temperature is maybe less important, but it is still quite important. And if you look, this is just showing a few more examples of uh, of the same plot for different major crops in the world. So this was the crop I showed in the previous slide. This is wheat in the same region, the second most important crop. And then I throw in two here from the the southern region of Africa the two most important crops arguably there are, are maize and wheat and you can see a, a, an extremely um, strong negative so let me point out the axes here this is saying that for uh, on the bottom left for example for a one degree increase in temperature Celsius so about two degrees Fahrenheit something that you know we wouldn't really notice necessarily from from our perspective the the, the maize crop in South Africa is about 50 percent reduced from an average in in that just from that amount of more Now this is an extreme example of a very sensitive crop but you can you can see even for uh, say rice or or wheat in in Asia that 10% is a a lot of food in this region and that's just from a one degree Celsius change and so as we as we um, and as I'll go forward and you'll see that these one degree is is really at the lower range of what we expect for the future a quick question. yeah these are annual uh, on on the these these data points are annually averaged yield for the region Um, and these are sort of deviations from what they normally are and in the temperature and rainfall are averages for the parts of the year when these are grown so not necessarily the whole year but just so this is looking at the the temperatures that the crops are seeing or the rainfall that the crops are effectively seeing now let me move into what we know about the future in terms of climate I talked a little bit about what we know about how crops respond to climate, but this is showing you um, that really we don't know rainfall that well in most regions of the world. We do know, um, on the left here is showing you the IPCC projections for rainfall, and blue is saying it's getting wetter and red is saying it's getting drier, and the dots are showing you where 80% of the models that have been run in the world agree on the sign of change. So there's about 22 models in the world that are are running independently or quasi-independently simulations of climate. And they all don't agree on rainfall in most regions. They do agree that you get wetter towards the poles. So so in the northern latitudes here and in the southern latitudes here, they do agree that you get quite a bit drier uh, in the subtropics, so places like southern Africa, places like the Mediterranean, you do get drier, and you see these dots here associated with these yellow and orange areas. But for much of the world, like the, the Sahel region, Um, most of the U.S., for example, there is not great agreement. If you look at uh, a related variable, which is soil moisture, you see similarly that there's not many dots on this figure, so there's not a whole lot of agreement. There's actually better agreement um, than precip, and part of that is because soil moisture is also driven by temperature. You can notice, for example, that even though it's getting wetter towards the poles, the soils are predicted to get drier because it's warming so much there. Okay, and, and really, from a crop's perspective, it's more the soil moisture, you could argue, than the precip itself that is important. But the point here is that we don't know a whole lot about what's going to happen with moisture or rainfall. We know in some regions um, a lot. We know in South Africa it's very likely to get drier. We know actually in Eastern Africa it's very likely to get wetter, and that's probably a positive sign for the Ethiopia area. Um, but as as a general rule, we don't know. You can contrast that with temperature. This is the same plot shown for temperature here and you see dots all over the place and that's because uh, the physics of temperature are much simpler to do and and we understand it much better and and if you contrast that with precip we have a very high confidence in what's going to happen now there's some question about the magnitude of course but you can see that the units here uh, this is out to the end of the century or we're talking about above three degrees Celsius or above say six degrees Fahrenheit and as as you look at the extreme models you're talking about potentially ten degrees Fahrenheit warming, which is which is a large amount so uh, temperature, as I said, was e- is much easier to project. And another way to think about this is if you look at these time series I showed in the beginning, you can just visually see that the trends in temperatures, and this is really representative of most parts of the world, the trends in temperatures are are, are quite large relative to the those wiggles you see from year to year. And it's not going to be very long until the, as Ross said in her talk, that the average year we see is going to be uh, analogous to the to the warmest year that we've ever seen before. And so you can contrast that with rainfall, where the trend may be significant up or down but it's certainly not gonna it is gonna take much longer until the, the the rainfall gets so far from from what we're used to experiencing and so the upshot of this is that even though rainfall is quite important from year to year temperature actually becomes extremely important as we look into the future and try to think about what we know and what we've done um, for example is an analysis uh, for a lot of the major crops in different regions of the world to see if you combine this knowledge of how Rainfall is going to change how temperature will change and how crops will respond to those changes. And you look at various models of, of, of these things so that you can try to capture what we don't know in terms of different <laughs> assumptions that different models make. You get, you get things that look like this, and this is showing for each crop uh, a range of what different models are showing for how much production will change as a result of climate change. So this is both temperature and rainfall, the combined effects on crops. And, and the middle of this is showing you what we would consider the the most likely scenario, and then the 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 ends here are showing you what the 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 worst in a sense and the best model gets, and and the and the box here is showing you a a reasonable range of between where 50% of the models are within this box. Now, to point out, if we if we go back to this case I was using a, as an example of rice in South Asia, even though rainfall was very important for this crop, and even though rainfall projections we not sure if they're going to go up or down, you can see that most of the models are predicting a decrease in rice only a few models actually show an increase so this is showing that we're 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 fairly sure there's a greater than seventy five percent chance in in our in our estimation that the rice production in South Asia will will be lower as a result of uh, of climate changes now this is important because obviously as I said before rice and wheat here we you see a similar story where we're very likely to see negative changes on the order of say five percent these are small percentages but again these are large food insecure populations, a lot of people living on the brink, and so those potentially could influence a lot of people. Now, moving to Africa, I think one of the interesting things, again, as I pointed out before, is that in East Africa, the, the increase in rainfall is, is really a good sign, and you can see um, for several of the crops, we, we have a likelihood that, that things will get better. But But look at South Africa. I think this is really one area where we were really surprised at how bad things look. And this is, I should have pointed out in the beginning, this is 2030, so we're not talking here about our grandchildren's grandchildren we're talking about you know uh, I I think hopefully all of us in the room will still be alive at this point and and you can see that we're talking about thirty percent drops in in production and this is this is something that is uh, I think if anything is going to affect the the stability of this region certainly a thirty percent drop in in production of their main staple is not going to help now the other thing to point out I think and this is where I want to uh, finish off is that when you look at the at the past and you see how crops have responded and and the and inherently how the humans managing these crops have responded to to, to weather you and, and you project that into the future you're in, assuming in some sense that people are going to keep doing things the way they've been doing them and with some exceptions of course farmers and governments are not stupid and and they're going to start to um, adapt what we call adaptation they're going to start to change uh, how they do things they're going to Um, potentially uh, do various things, which I'll talk about. And so the real, I think, key uncertainty, in addition to the rainfall I've talked about, is how much people are going to be able to cope with this. And Roz mentioned some of these things. Um, From my perspective, I think there are three big things that people generally point to um, as adaptations. One is simply get richer, which is, it seems silly, but this is really what most models say, is if If uh, you take the US as an example, we're not gonna care so much if our food prices go up 20, 30% because we're wealthy, right? And so a lot of models look at Africa and say, well, they just need to get richer and then they don't have to worry if their food production goes down a little bit. This is, um, it sounds naive, but this is certainly the assumption that's built into a lot of of projections of hunger and impacts of climate change is, um, well, climate change is not gonna be a problem because they're all gonna be much richer than they are today. So that's certainly one way to adapt. again there's a question of how likely that is the second way really i think is a key one is to try to develop uh, and implement in farmers fields crops that can better withstand heat and again this is something that's easy to say and it's easy to um give lip service to but but it's really a, a very um you know long term and expensive effort usually investments in say crop breeding take 15 to 20 years typically to to return on the investment and they're great returns but there is a long time scale associated with it and it's a big question as to whether we're investing enough in this region in this area of research and then finally um, a huge adaptation potentially especially with rainfall and 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 drought is is to implement more irrigation so right now uh, we have about 15 percent of of agriculture uses irrigation and that accounts for about 40 percent of the food we eat and and the argument is that well um, say for example in the plains we could begin to irrigate if we really get uh, dry and we and we really see drying for example in that region Uh, I think there's some some sense to that logic there's certainly some expense to that that shouldn't be discounted there's certainly not an easy thing to do and the other thing to point out I think is that this is not independent of climate change and what something that really struck me in the latest IPCC was the statement about the the, the the region in South Asia we were talking about whereas glaciers in the Himalayas uh, are receding faster than any other part of the world and if the present rates continue the likelihood of them disappearing by the year 2035 and perhaps sooner is very high if the earth keeps warming at the, at the current rate so these are the, the glaciers that feed the irrigation systems in India and Pakistan are are, are, are very susceptible to, to warming and this is really um, brings into question whether we'll even be able to maintain the amounts of irrigation we use much less increase them in response to climate change, and so these are the kind of uncertainties uh, that I think are huge. So I just <laughs> wanted to uh, finish off by throwing out five questions, which um, maybe not be provocative, but maybe stir some thought. Um, and, and you can obviously read them yourselves. But I think the the ones that I want to highlight are: um, Will we make the investments to to adapt? It's it's a I think it's uh, very widely accepted that some adaptation will occur, but the big question is how much, and I think that's really a, a question uh, of investment and smart choices of, of what we look at and where we look. Um, this issue of water resources I, I just mentioned, rainfall I've mentioned, something I didn't really mention is that none of our models now really are looking at extreme events. Um, because there really aren't that many of them historically to get a good sense, I think, of, of what their impacts will be. And, and the climate models don't necessarily agree on what's going to happen in the future. But there is a wild card out there that, that we're going to have a lot of floods or, or something like that, that'll or pest outbreaks, for example, that will really um, make these projections much worse than I have already presented. And so um, that that's a, a big uncertainty. And then this issue of how rich can we really get um, a, as an adaptation strategy is going to be um, you know, really, the the key force be behind how many millions and potentially hundreds of millions of people are at risk of hunger due to climate change, and I, I think that's one thing to leave you with is the scale of the problem. Is 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 the worst models are projecting upwards of of six to seven hundred million additional people, so so essentially a doubling of the number of hungry people. If we just superimpose the amount of climate change on the current economic economic system now certainly the econ- economic system is changing but but that puts into perspective the the magnitude uh, of the potential impacts that we're talking about okay.
2: thank you
0: Thank you David and and um, one thing we might put on the table later is this assumption that a lot of models use in terms of places like Africa becoming richer and rising out of poverty, particularly when well over half of the employment comes from agriculture and most of the poor actually depend on agriculture for their livelihood. So how that feeds into an economic model, um, we'll turn it over to Ted. Do you want to move? Yeah, I think I'll
2: stand. Maybe I'll just stand by the computer. Great, um, so so thanks so much uh, for, for coming to this panel. I really want to also just thank David for such a, a nice uh, uh, presentation, and a lot of what he said is gonna kind of flow into what I'm gonna talk about next, uh, just because you can't separate out uh, agriculture, the economy, and conflict in Africa. These things are totally intertwined, and so what he talked about is gonna be very important uh, for what I'm uh, I'm gonna uh, discuss with y'all. So. I'm going to focus particularly on Sub-Saharan Africa in this talk and the problem of civil war and civil conflict there. This is a problem that is really one of the, the, the scourges of humanity. Um, the number of African countries that have experienced civil war in the last couple decades is huge. So it's not something that's just affected one or two countries or even three or four. Two-thirds of countries in Sub-Saharan Africa have, a, have had at least one year of armed civil conflict since 1980. So civil conflict for the majority of countries in Africa has been part of their reality during just the last couple decades. It isn't some strange case, some outlier, something unusual, it's kind of normal. And it's something we really need to understand if we're gonna uh, make any progress on economic development. So the two questions I'm gonna focus on are first, what are the causes of these conflicts? And I'm gonna think about economic causes and climate causes. And second, will climate change actually make things worse? That's really the kind of theme of this whole session and really what David started pointing us toward but I'm going to make this. he made a step from climate to the economy through agriculture and I'm going to try to make the next step to civil conflict. This is something with obvious implications for Africa. When a country's at war, it's a catastrophe for the economy, but it's something that's also important for us in the US. There really big what we would call spillover effects, uh, what we economists would call spillover effects for the rest of the world to having a civil war, failed states in the midst of a civil war become easy prey for organized crime, for terrorists, It's something that we really need to understand (coughs) for US foreign policy, this is one of the themes that just came up in the previous session, Uh, even beyond the obvious humanitarian implications for Africa, and that's kind of the thing driving why I'm working on it, but other people may care about it for other reasons. So this is just a picture from Sierra Leone. It's a country where I've been doing field work over the last uh, four years. These are child soldiers, so when you think about armed conflict in Africa, you might initially think of armies of soldiers sort of well organized, no, actually a lot of fighters are children who are abducted from their homes to fight. Uh, Really the future of these kids and other uh, children in sub-Saharan Africa is riding on figuring out solutions to these problems, trying to understand the extent of this problem. Um, We don't want future generations of kids in Sierra Leone or the rest of Africa to have to go through the living hell that, that these kids went through. So this picture was taken I think in 1999 Um, Thankfully today Sierra Leone's at peace and we've started doing research to to try to understand how to solidify the peace, but lots of African countries are still in civil conflict today. So the research I'm going to talk about is some research we've, we've published recently that highlights a link between climate, and in particular precipitation, and civil conflict. What we basically find looking at African countries since 1980 is a very tight relationship between what we call rainfall shocks, big drops in rainfall, think of drought years. So when, when rainfall falls a lot and there's a drought year, we find that the risk of civil conflict in Africa increases a lot. There's a tight relationship in the data between those, uh, those two things. And we argue that the relationship is, is being mediated through the economy and in particular through agriculture. So the majority of population in Sub-Saharan Africa still works in the agrarian economy. They still rely on rain-fed agriculture. Very few people have irrigation in Africa. Uh, It's much rarer in Africa than in Asia. So when the rains fail, there's no water for their crops. Their crops fail, and their income falls. You get a lot of desperate poor people, and civil conflict is the result uh, of that. The use of rainfall here is is, uh, important for us too, analytically, when others have studied, when people have studied this problem in the past, you might ask yourself, well, how can you disentangle poverty and violence? You know, maybe poverty leads to violence, and then violence, you know, warfare contributes to further poverty. Because if you're in the middle of a civil war, who's gonna invest? Infrastructure is being destroyed. But the good thing about using rainfall is that conflict on the ground isn't gonna affect rainfall in the air. So we're very much isolating the effect on agriculture and the economy and seeing how that feeds into further conflict. Another statistic here, I gave you that number before, which was two thirds of African countries have had at least one year of conflict. Well, in any given year since 1980, 23%, so basically a quarter of African countries are at civil war in any given year. So again, it's just a normal occurrence that in any given year, out of the 40 something African countries, maybe a dozen are in, are in civil war. The kind of data that we use to, to do this study is satellite data, so this is data uh, on rainfall levels, precipitation levels around the globe. What we did is we took hundreds of these images, basically every 10 days or so, an image is snapped. Um, And this gives us, to a very localized level, the amount of rainfall in different parts of the world. Where blue here, this is from January 1999, just one of hundreds of these images. Blue means there was a lot of rainfall in that period, and yellow means there wasn't very much. You can immediately see the dryness here in the Sahara, in Africa. Uh, Quite a bit of dryness in the Sahel, the region just south of the Sahara that's been experiencing more and more drying over time. So there's uh, actually (laughs) this dot here, I just want to mention it, that's Lake Chad. Lake Chad which borders the country of of Chad and also uh, Niger and Nigeria that touches Cameroon. That lake in the 1960s was one of the biggest lakes in the world and it shrunk down to only 10 to 20% of its former size because of Uh, increased temperatures, and reduced rainfall. So we're already starting to see big uh, effects of climate change in parts of Africa, including um, some changes in Chad. So what do we find? We focus on these these, few dozen countries, 43 countries, and find a very strong relationship between drought and civil war. What's the size of that effect? David showed you a very nice plot before of rainfall levels bouncing up and down in India from year to year bouncing up and down by 150 or 200 millimeters year to year. So that's kind of a a normal amount of variation in rainfall. In Africa, a drop of 200 millimeters of rainfall in our model, in our statistical model, leads to an increased risk of civil war of 4.3 percentage points, so about 19%. So just that sort of normal year to year variation in rainfall is associated with significantly more risk of conflict. We don't actually find in our data that temperature is a significant predictor of conflict. So uh, David had mentioned for some crops, when temperature increases, crop yields fall a lot. But for some other crops, they're not as sensitive to temperature. So uh, for for maize, you know, corn in Southern Africa, they're very sensitive, but maybe for cassava and millet in West Africa, they're less sensitive. So we're not finding that tight link uh, in temperature and conflict, the same way we are for, for drought, for precipitation. That's really in our data what comes through strongly, let me not really dwell on, on the, the statistics here, but this box number is basically where we get that, that effect of uh, precipitation on conflict. For every 100 meters, let me, let me interpret it, for every 100 millimeters drop in rainfall, um, there's an increase of about two percentage points in conflict risk. So you can kind of do the math. If there's a 200 percentage 200 millimeter drop in rainfall, that's about a four percentage increase in conflict risk. If there's a 300 millimeter drop in rainfall, that's a six, six percentage point increase in conflict risk. So that's that's what the model tells us. Um, let me uh, go on to, to talk about where climate change fits into the picture. So I've just shown you this relationship. Precipitation and conflict are closely linked. Temperature, not not so much so. So what we do, and what I'll talk about in the second part of the talk is taking the predictions of where precipitation is going, where temperature is going in the future, and tying them into our model. So given that relationship, that for every 100 millimeters of rainfall, less rainfall you get, you have 2% more conflict risk, plugging in predicted precipitation and seeing what we get. We look across six of the leading climate models. Um, Some of these are US, some are British, some are Japanese. Um, And a couple different scenarios, I'm not gonna get into too much of the detail, uh, other than to say, we tried to look at a broad range of scenarios, and, and this is a plot that, that we come up with. These are the predicted precipitation levels that these different models, these six leading climate models, make for average rainfall in Africa from you know, just about today, 2010 through 2080. So let's just go forward 70 years under a kind of moderate scenario, the A1B scenario. You can see that in the next decade or so, they're all kind of bouncing around. But then as we get out a few decades, they really start diverging. So this is, again, just emphasizing the point David made, that there's a lot less consensus in the models. These are the leading models by the best climate scientists in, you know, Europe, the U.S., Asia. Um, and they don't really agree on where rainfall is going. So let's look at this one here, the blue one. This is the, from GFDL. This is Princeton. This is, a, you know, the leading climate group at Princeton. They actually predict that rainfall in sub-Saharan Africa is going to drop a lot this century. So if those smart climate scientists at Princeton are right, Africa as a whole is gonna have a drop of about 100 millimeters in rainfall, on average. In any given year, it could be even worse. Other folks at NCAR, another American group, show an increase over time by about 100 millimeters. A bunch of the other models are sort of in the middle, maybe with a little bit of an upward trend. So what what I'm gonna talk about next is sort of the the, the average prediction, the median prediction, and then best case, worst case scenarios. Because we really don't know exactly where precipitation's going, I'm gonna pay some particular attention though, to the worst case scenario. Just cause if it's true, it could be really disastrous. And it might well be true if these folks at Princeton are right. A Couple technical details. Uh, we're gonna look at all the models. We're not just gonna pick one or the other. We're gonna weight them equally in our analysis and then run simulations where we're basically simulating what the climate is gonna look like in the future based on these climate models. So what do we find? There's three lines here on the plot. These are years going forward. The middle one here is our average prediction across all these six models. The bottom line is our worst case scenario, just like that GFDL plot before. The top one is our best case scenario. So these are confidence intervals, and this is kind of a range of plausible variation. So it looks like on average precipitation levels in Africa are gonna be pretty flat. But if the worst case scenario people are right, they're gonna get worse and worse. So This is just like the plot I showed you before. Things could get a lot worse. On average though, the models don't have too much to say one way or the other. Um, What happens now when we take those precipitation trends and link them up to our model linking climate and civil war violence in our 43 African countries? What we find, not surprisingly, is on average, conflict risk is gonna be pretty stable over time just because precipitation on average looks like it's gonna be pretty stable across the models. But there's some striking differences. So first, different regions are going to have different precipitation levels going forward. David's already touched on this. Southern Africa looks like it's going to have quite a bit less rainfall, it's going to have higher temperatures. If that's the case, crops are going to suffer, and so our model predicts actually conflict risk is going to rise in southern Africa, also in West Africa. At the same time, other parts of Africa, East Africa in particular, are going to have better rainfall, higher rainfall over time. Our model predicts they're going to have somewhat less conflict risk. So there are differences within Africa that we have to be sensitive to uh, when we talk about climate change. It's not just Africa as a whole. The different regions are going to have a different, uh, different fate. Now, if we look at these worst-case scenarios, it tells a different story. If we focus on West Africa, one of these at-risk regions, and we look at the worst-case scenario, we find that conflict risk could actually go up substantially by about 21% through 2080 if those pessimistic precipitation scenario uh, forecasts are right. So the punchline here is things look on average, because the climate models in terms of precipitation are all over the place, it's not like we know for sure things are gonna get worse, but some of the very reputable models are predicting they can get a lot worse. So there's something to be really concerned about going forward. Um, And that's really the punchline of the talk, is that if things look as bad as they might under the worst models, there could be a lot more civil war in Africa. And there's already a ton of civil war in Africa. Two thirds of countries have already had civil conflict in recent decades, it could get even worse. Um, two big points, and David made very similar points. We've made our PowerPoints independently, and then when we compare notes, turns out the ordering of our slides was very similar, which is great. Um, all of this assumes that political institutions and social institutions and the underlying economic environment in Africa is gonna be pretty stable over the coming century. Now, that may not be a crazy assumption. The last. 30 years have been a period of real stagnation in Africa. There hasn't been tons of economic growth. Um, But it's a caveat. Things may change. In particular, there's a whole bunch of different adaptive responses that may occur. And really, these are our hope going forward. The hope is, as the climate change challenge is now upon us, that there will be new institutions that emerge to try to reduce conflict, that there will be more irrigation, that there will be better crop varieties to try to contain the damage that may occur if the most pessimistic scenarios become reality. That's it. Thank you.
0: Thanks very much, Ted. I'm going to open it up um, to questions, but I just wanted to make a note on on Ted's last point in terms of adaptation. I had mentioned Google.org and its investments. Um, one of their potential initiatives that they're evaluating right now is in short form called Climate Proofing Africa, and really taking these sorts of models that are now being put out there, understanding that these risks are very large, and investing now to try to help Africa avert some of these difficulties when it comes down the line. And I think this very forward-looking view uh, is hopefully what's going to save the day in the end, but I think the, the work now is very useful in sort of anticipating and investing before it's really too late. So let me open it up to questions.